Um, today, I'm delighted to host a conversation with Jonathan Capehart, a Pulitzer Prize winning associate editor of the Washington Post, which just one of many gigs he's got. Jonathan and I go way back to the beginning of the George Bush president seat. Thus, it'll be great fun catching up with him on the political, cultural, and economic challenges of America today. Having said that, let's go to the news of the day, the debt ceiling compromise. When Jonathan and I were trying to find a specific date for today's webinar, um, he suggested today, little did I know, that he would arrange uh, for the debt ceiling destruction day to become the debt ceiling compromise day. And if you have not read it, you should read more about Jonathan Capehart because the thing that did it was an opinion piece he did on May 26th, uh, which changed the course of the current economic crisis. So having said that, Jonathan, two question, what's its significance? The significance of the House vote yesterday. Yeah, or, or, or maybe coming to a debt ceiling Compromise. Sure. Well, first thing, Mark, thank you very much for <clears throat> excuse me for inviting me uh, to do this and to be here today. And thanks to everyone who has uh, joined our conversation. Um, well, the biggest significance of the deal yesterday, or, or, or of the deal passing the House, is that if one, there's a deal uh, to avoid a catastrophic default. Two, that it passed the House by a margin bigger than anyone expected, uh, with bigger margins among Republicans and bigger margins among Democrats. Um, now the next hurdle is to get it passed in the Senate, which, you know, you keep your fingers crossed that they will do it because they either, they, they've got to vote and they've got to get it done before Monday. Because on Monday, is, that is the day that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen um, told Congress last week in a letter last Friday that the the Treasury won't have enough money on Monday, June 5th to meet all of its obligations, i.e., if you don't raise the debt ceiling by June 5th, we will default uh, for the first time in the nation's history. And so that's why yesterday's vote is so significant. And then, you know, later on, we can talk about, you, you know, uh, how this benefits both the speaker and the president. But I do want to point out one thing, and it just occurred to me as you were you were introducing me, I became a debt ceiling nerd back in 2011 when we went through this the first time in, in a major way. And two things happened that really sort of solidified why what was happening then was so important. One was the Bipartisan Policy Center, which was putting out these reports on a day, almost daily basis, colorful charts showing what will happen if the government did not, if the Congress did not raise the debt ceiling, money coming into the treasury, bills that were due, and the calamity that would happen if we didn't, um, if the United States didn't raise its debt ceiling. And the Bipartisan Policy Center was taking these charts around Capitol Hill and the person who was taking those charts around, this is as an aside, was a young, was a man by the name of Jerome Powell, who is now, as you, you guys know, is the Fed chair. But the second most important thing that happened was a dinner mark that you hosted with financial services big shots who were, and members of Congress from both sides of the aisle, talking about in real terms, real economic terms, what would happen if Congress didn't raise the debt ceiling 
and their fears, their collective fears that Congress would not do something. So I left that dinner, Mark, convinced that this was something I needed to write about on a near daily basis, which I did through the summer, right up until an agreement was finally uh, forged about 24 hours before um, the X date back in 2011. Well, well, all I know is I can't retire and I've got to come up with another dinner to address a fundamental economic challenge with Jonathan will then solve. Now, for those of you who don't know much about Jonathan, you're stupid, but I'll tell you what there is to know. Associate editor of the Washington Post, opinion editor at the Post, host of the weekly podcast, K Part and the Weekly Post Live Show, First Look at MSNBC, author of the Sunday Saturday show with Jonathan Capar, the Sunday show with Jonathan Capar at PBS, a political analyst at the PBS NewsHour, which is featured on the popular Friday second, Brooks and Capar. I'm already exhausted. (laughs) When do you sleep? Or when do, or why do you have time to have a webinar with me? Oh, sorry about that. Um, um, well, I mean, it's a it is a seven day a week job. Um, you know, the post is Monday through Friday. Uh, MSNBC is basically Wednesday through Sunday, uh, and so I try to find moments here and there where I can relax. <laughs> take it easy a little bit, if not, you know, completely take time off. Um, but, you know, look, Mark, when I was a little kid, this is this is the profession I wanted to be in. Um, little did I know that I would be in it at the level that I am. And so whenever I get dog tired, as it happened once, I was on the Acela, I think on my way back from New York, just dog tired. And I was about to feel sorry for myself. And then I remembered when I was riding the then Metro liner from Washington to New York to do interviews in the early, no, in the late 80s, no, early 90s. So 30 years, more than 30 years ago, and just sort of dreaming of what my life would be like in 20 years, in 30 years. Um, and this was at the beginning of what I would was hoping would be a career in journalism. And so I thought about that and I just, I couldn't help but giggle because here I am, here I am doing doing what I've always wanted to do. And I apologize for the interruptions. Um, as soon as we're done with this conversation, I've got to uh, jump into a hit with MSNBC. So they're trying to call into a mic and do a mic test and I completely forgot to tell them. So I'm going to, as you ask a, what I hope will be a long, long-winded question mark. I'm going to text them and, and tell them, like, hey, cut it out, <laughs> cut it out. Well, what I want to get at, um, since it, since you are one of the most noted journalists in the country, journalism. Your thoughts on the state of journalism? You started the New York Daily News. Um, let's talk about journalism when you started. Let's talk about journalism today. Let's talk about journalism in the future. We can talk about where the Walter Cronkite of today is, but now we've got digital platforms. We've got monthly unique hits. Uh, We've got sponsored events. But since you've been at it for a while, let's talk about then, today, and now. Wow. So when- Long question. 
Yes. So even so, when I was a, a, the news director of the radio station at my alma mater, Carlton, we still had a UPI machine. Um, United Press International, the the tele telex thing that would spool out all these stories on one giant ream of paper. We had three networks, um, three national newspapers, if you will, the the Post, the Times, Wall Street Journal, um, and people had a very narrow way of getting their news. Fast forward to. Um, the early 2000s and the dawn of public access to the public access to the internet. The message has not gone through um, public access to the internet, which meant, which was a democratization of information. And so now all those resources that I had um, as a journalist that were the sole province of me, of mine, fellow journalists, politicians, lawyers, was now accessible to everyone. Now my mother had as much access to information as I did as a journalist. And as a person who is in the business of access to information, that's great. The problem is, as we have seen over 20 something years, is that with democratization of information comes people siloing themselves into news environments that. Um, uh, ratify and validate their own worldview. And um, it's great to feel comfortable and confident in your positions, but as we have seen over time, it is not good for a thriving democracy, which requires people to talk, be able to talk to each other, but also requires compromise, it requires people to not just state what their position is, but to also listen to what the other side is saying if only if, you know, maybe to find the holes in their arguments and try to push back against them, or at least go, you know what, they raise a good point, and maybe I should adjust my thinking. Um, that is the, I think the, and now you add in what we, what we're all worried about, or a lot of us are worried about now, and that is artificial intelligence. I'm not so worried that we are facing a Terminator scenario where the machines take over the world, but I am worried about the possibility of AI adding to um, disinformation, to lies and things that serve to agitate um, societies for the sole purpose of destroying societies. That is what I'm most worried about when it comes to uh, artificial intelligence. But look, you know, I say to my I say to my colleagues all the time um, when they say, you know, it's hard to break through, it's hard to do this, that, and the other. We're in the business of we are in the business of sharing information, and I'm always of the thought that if I write a piece that only say gets twenty page views in the moment. At least it's out there. Someone one day is going to do a search and I'm going to have the information that they are looking for. And in the end, that's why we are in this business and in journalism is to share information, to share facts as we know them at the time, and then um, update our thoughts and opinions, uh, update our stories when new facts make themselves available. Um, for for 
a fellow or a fellowette in Washington, D.C., I told you I'm exhausted just following <laughs> you. What do you tell the average person? I separated into two things because my job, obviously, is keeping up with politics, but hopefully I also read thought pieces. What do you read? I mean, you, you know, just as I said, I was exhausted just following you. But I mean, am I supposed to read all the newsletters? Am I supposed to, you know, then you've got Semaphore. Now you've got the other one coming out. You've got serious pieces out there, books to read. How, how do you figure out to make some and and get some sleep? What right. do you it, suggest? It, 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 it is being in this job is living with the constant knowledge that you, that I will not know everything ever (laughs) as hard as I try. Look, my routine is I read the post and I read the times. Um, I, I read punch bowl. Um, I will make my way to Politico. And then as the day goes on, I've got MSNBC on the back on in the background. I will toggle back and forth between MS and CNN just to, keep on top of the stuff that I haven't been able to read up on yet. Um, When it comes to preparing for my show, that's another opportunity for me to say, oh, I haven't read up on this particular subject. Let me go back and find, find the stories I need to read in order to be, you know, to do a knowledgeable interview when the time comes. So again, in this business, it is always about, it's doing your own reporting and then reading the reporting uh, of others just to make sure you know as much as you can uh, for the work that you have to do. We've talked about the economy. We've talked about journalism. Now politics. You were once in politics advising and writing speeches for Michael Bloomberg during his 2001 run for New York City mayor. Would things be better today if he were president? <laughs> well, I just want to clarify something. I don't know where that came from that I wrote speeches for Mayor Bloomberg. I was a policy advisor uh, to Mayor Bro- Bloomberg. It's Wikipedia. On, uh, oh, uh, Mark, come on. You know, you're not supposed to believe everything that you read on Wikipedia. So I, I take it back. Okay. Which so, I like I, better a policy advisor. Okay. A policy he advisor. President and his policies. Um, and, and so on his first campaign for mayor in 2001, which you know, as a political journalist, you know, I always thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to work on a campaign just to see what it's like? And then I had the opportunity, you know, Mike asked me when I was at Bloomberg News, I would like for you to work on my campaign for mayor. Uh, and I jumped at the chance um, for two reasons. The primary reason, I like Mike Bloomberg and a- as a person. And I read his book, Bloomberg by Bloomberg, which if you haven't read it, you know, when you read it with a political eye, it is filled with landmines, filled with political landmines. But when I finished it, I closed the book and I remember looking up and saying, he's going to win. This was in two, this was like February 2001. I don't know. Intellectually, I shouldn't have said that. But instinctually and from from here, from my gut, it just came out. He's going to win. Uh, And he did. He did. Um, He ran New York City um, in an excellent way. Uh, When he jumped into the race for president, I remember writing a column saying, please, Mike, don't do this. (laughs) Don't do it. Even though you would be a terrific president, you don't do it. I I had the opportunity, actually not... um, 
I slipped a message to him through um, through some folks to, to, to say again, you know, don't do it. He jumped in the race. It would have been interesting if he had been able to make it out of that first debate alive. <laughs> um, and if he were president, I think he would have he would have been a terrific president, given the record he had as mayor of New York City. A challenge here. Um, I saw a cute um, quote from Larry Diamond at Stanford, who says we are in a democratic recession. But more importantly, Martin Wolf at the Financial Times wrote a controversial book called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, which basically says the free markets are now rigged by people um, buying influence and obviously the danger of Pluto populism, which could end free markets and democracy as we know it. How big or how big a threat is there to democracy and our particular interest to free market? Uh, Martin Wolf says it's very, very serious. The, but I, what I missed is um, it's very, very serious. What is what actually is the threat? Is it the it's economic and and politically political? And he he actually goes so far as to talk about pre-Nazi Germany, where the economy is in serious in, in serious problem because you're you got interest groups, you know, manipulating the economy. All it's not as bad as Russia. And then the crisis for democracy of course, is is rabid populism on both sides. And what he does is he links the two together. Um, that the, we've done well in this country because we had democracy and we had a free market. But he's very, very pessimistic, maybe because of his own family situation. How serious a threat do we have? And, and let's even focus on democracy alone, if you'd like. Um, well, um, when it comes to democracy, um, I think the single biggest thing that um, threatened our democracy, American democracy, and then sort of democracy around the world was the presidency of Donald Trump. We had never had a president of the United States use the bully pulpit of the White House and the moral authority of the Oval Office to undermine the foundations of our democracy, the rule of law, the Constitution. Um, attacking the press, attacking private citizens, attacking businesses uh, from the White House, from the office of the presidency. And when you have that, when you have the person in the office that represent is supposed to represent American democracy, the rule of law, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world, a lot of people take a step back and think, hmm, Maybe this isn't maybe this isn't for us or maybe maybe we should try something else or maybe we should go about destroying it. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, the, the dangers to democracy are very real. You know, I um, have said many times um, in the run up to 2024, you know, we shouldn't focus so much on Donald Trump. Uh, as a as a presidential candidate, we should focus on Trumpism and what that represents. You can have Trumpism without Donald Trump and all the implications for democracy um, that that represents. And so we are not out of, from my perspective, not out of the woods yet in terms of uh, shoring up American democracy. When it comes to the to the economy, I am less. Um, 
um, knowledgeable when it comes to the economy. But I will say this, the divide between rich and poor in this country, I think, is much more of a danger than, say, you know, focusing in on uh, on whether, well, I guess you could, the folks who say the system is rigged and uh, and so on and so forth will play into that. But until we get to, uh, we can start figuring out and addressing, and and I'm bringing this up because I think of you know, when I go on my walks um, here in Washington, I noted you know there are tent cities. The tent cities get moved, and now you start seeing lone tents just popping up in quote unquote random places, and anyone with a with a heart walking by this tent that shows up out of nowhere would ask. Why is that tent there? What led someone or or multiple people to set up tents here? Um, certainly, of course, it's an economic issue, but is it um, a housing issue, um, mental health issues, um, access to to services? I mean, we have got to at some point start addressing those big economic issues that push people from their homes into the streets in tents um, because, and it's not just, it's, you know, it's not just happening in Washington. It's happening in New York, in Los Angeles, where Mayor Bass is trying her best, the new mayor of Los Angeles, trying her best to address those issues. And so, um, you know, those are my, those are my thoughts on that, Mark. Let me let me go a little bit deeper, if I could. And I had a fascinating webinar with Congressman Bobby Rush, um, as you may remember, Fred Hampton and the whole the whole situation. And and one of the questions I asked him, which is my next question, is a basic one: Have we made any progress? Because it contributes both to the threat to democracy and the economy. Have we made any progress on racism, anti-Semitism, and hatred? I just reread, which you probably know, the book by Ellie Wiesel called Night. And I remember I had a conversation with Ellie Wiesel where he said, we have made no progress on those fundamental issues. So I'm pessimistic. And yet you've got Mandela, John Lewis, Martin Luther King, and Gandhi, who are examples of how we can make progress. So what's my question? Have we made any progress? Well, it's fundamental concerns. Um, the answer is yes and no. Um, you could say no just by looking at the data from the Southern Property Law Center, from the Anti-Defamation League, from the Human Rights Campaign, from the NAACP about the rise in hate crimes around the country, the rise of intolerance. It did not help that the previous president, again, and this is when I said the moral authority of the Oval Office, it did not help that the former president um, gave moral cover to white nationalists who marched on Charlottesville and rioted in Charlottesville and ended up killing Heather Heyer by saying that there were very fine people on both sides. No, there were not. A president of the United States should never, should never give moral or political uh, cover to people who would undermine the foundations of our society and our democracy. And so in that regard, um, you know, no, we have not made any progress. 
But on the flip, on the flip side, yes, we have made progress, incremental, because um, as is the way of our country, you one step uh, in progress when it comes to um, um, you know improving uh, race relations, just writ large. Um, there are always two or three steps back. Um, but I mean, you raise um, several names. You know, Congressman John Lewis is you know a, a great example of someone who shows not just the sweep of showed the sweep of history but all the cyclical also the cyclical nature of our history uh, a young man who at 23 was the youngest person to speak at the march on washington in 1963 who by at that point at 23 years old had already been a, an activist and demonstrator and leader in the civil rights movement when segregation was the law of the land when the races were separated, when there was state-sanctioned violence against Black people who were only asking that their country apply the American ideals to African Americans as well. That young man then leads a march from Selma to Washington on March 7th, 1965, and he and some of the 600 people he was leading were tear gassed and beaten. He almost died on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Five months later, the 1965 Voting Rights Act was signed into law. John Lewis went on to become a member of Congress. Um, that could not happen if there weren't progress, if, <clears throat> excuse me, if the nation did not take a step back, look in the mirror and do right. But Congressman Lewis also lived long enough to see all of that, the blood, sweat, and tears that he shed to move, help move the country to be a more, to be, to live out its ideals and be a more perfect union. He lived long enough to see the Voting Rights Act gutted. He lived long enough to see erosions in, in integration. He lived long enough um, to see both the election of the first Black person as president of the United States, and then the election of someone who was that president's complete opposite, who then did all sorts of things that not only undermine his hard work in terms of civil rights, but the nation's work on a whole host of other issues. And so that gets that's why I say yes and no. Jonathan, I'm very cognizant of, of your appointment in two minutes, so you can just say yes to the following question. Um, I'm for a constitutional amendment to deal with this issue. No one can serve as president of the United States unless they've served 27 years in prison like Nelson Mandela. Can you endorse it? Uh, <laughs> well, no. And you know why? Because um, that could lead to, let's say, if a former president were not only arrested, but found guilty and served time in prison, that that president could then run for president again. Well, we'll, that, we'll take that. care of that. But Jonathan, I am so grateful for your time, all you're doing. We're meeting the deadline. Have a wonderful uh, day. And I'll encourage everybody, even though they'll be exhausted, to follow you all over the place. <laughs> And um, maybe you've turned me around and there is hope in the future of humanity. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, Jonathan. All right, Mark. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, everyone.